Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, and today I'm doing something a little bit different. I've got two authors <laughs> in, in the booth with me today, and I couldn't be more happy to have them with me. I'm going to introduce them in alphabetical order, because that's how you do it. Um, so I'm going to start with Alexandra Joel, who was a former editor of Harper's Bazaar and Portfolio Magazines. Um, she's been a regular contributor to The Australian and The Herald, um, and she's also the author of Rosetta, a biography of her great-grandmother, and Parade, the story of fashion in Australia. Her fiction debut, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is called The Paris Model. Welcome, Alexandra. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. And on my right (laughs) (laughs) is Kerry Turner, um, who's an historical fiction author who lives in Sydney with her husband and Schnauzer, who I was just looking at photos of. Uh, She's trained from a young age as a ballerina, um, and has an associate degree in dance and a diploma in publishing. Um, she's now combined her passions um, as an author of historical fiction. Uh, she's the author of two novels, The Last Days of the Romanov Dancers, and her new one, which we'll talk about today, is The Daughter of the Victory Lights. Welcome, Thank Carrie. you so much for having me. Oh, welcome both. <laughs> um, I brought you both in because you've both written works of historical fiction um, with romantic elements that centre on strong, independent women um, who are living through turbulent times of the 20th century. Um, uh, They both offer up intergenerational intrigue and wonderful lashings of glamour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So why don't we stick to uh, alphabetical order? Alexandra, would you like to introduce the listeners to your novel? My novel is inspired by a true story. So it uh, is about Grace Woods, who is a real person. She grew up in the far west of New South Wales on a big property. She discovered something shocking about her past, and this was true. Um, This compelled her to go to Paris, where she had to try and discover her own identity. So while she was there, she became a Dior mannequin. It's post-World War II Paris. The place is full of artists, writers, philosophers. All the Americans are coming in. The movie stars are there. And she's right in the middle of it. But she becomes drawn in to a plot to assassinate the American ambassador. And she has to play a significant part. And in doing that, her background suddenly comes to light. Terrific. (laughs) Sounds good. I want to read that. (laughs) All right, Kerry, your turn. (laughs) Well, my book follows Evelyn Bell, who it opens when she's living in London during the war years, and she has just been accepted for a trial where they're seeing if women have the mental and physical fortitude to uh, be searchlight operators for anti-aircraft guns. And it's a trial that they think will fail. And it's a real trial. This actually happened. And it did not fail. The women were very successful. And as a result, all female searchlight regiments started opening up. And so Evelyn is in the very first all-female one, the 93rd Searchlight Regiment. And we get to see her wartime experiences there. And we also get to see some wartime experiences of Flynn, who's an American man who works for the Graves Registration Unit, which was an awful job that some men had following sort of in the field of battle once the battle had finished cleaning up the 
fallen servicemen and collecting all their belongings to send them back to their family. So we see both of their wartime experiences and then the war ends and Evelyn finds herself resenting being forced back into this domestic life that she had had before and not having any say or any option in that. And through her wartime experience that she gained, she discovers this sort of crazy opportunity by meeting this man who works on a boat called The Victory, which has this show, which is kind of a mix of burlesque and cabaret and water ballet, sort of a few things Mm. jammed together. And her experiences through the war allow her the opportunity to start a new life on this boat where Flynn is also working. So their stories sort of collide there. And then we flick to the 1960s where we have a little girl called Lucy and there's kind of a mystery as to what happened to the people in the first part of the book, particularly Evelyn, and how they connect to Lucy and what's going to happen then. A lot of intrigue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, both of these books um, involve things that you're passionate about, um, good dance and performance in, mm-hmm. in your case, Carrie, um, and fashion for That's you. That's right. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to ask you both um, where the ideas for these books sprang from, um, whether it resulted from research or whether research was something that followed the gem for these books. I have always adored fashion. My mother was a model in the late 40s and When I grew up, I used to adore watching her get dressed and I used to go through all her cuttings. She had um, women's weekly covers and woman covers and I thought thought she looked like a princess. Um, As I grew up, I became more involved. I was the youngest ever student at the Singer Sewing Machine course at age 10. (laughs) Um, And it really became a passion for me. I ended up writing two books about it and I became I was lucky enough to become editor of Harper's Bazaar, which would have to be one of the absolutely best and most fabulous jobs. Um, during the, doing the books, it also brought in my great love of history. And so really it told the story of 200 years of Australia, but through dress. And those incredible moments like Sonia McMahon, the Prime Minister's wife's split dress, or when Jean Shrimpton came to the Melbourne Cup in a miniskirt, all these things um, which caused controversy at the time showed so much about it. So I've always adored it, but particularly the new look. Um, during the wartime that Kerry was talking about, you know, there was rationing and women had to wear skimpy little dresses. Um, you could have a very, very limited amount of fabric. And those rationing uh, restrictions were in place after the war. Enter Christian Dior in 1947 with what was dubbed the new look. These fabulous huge skirts, these wonderful hats, gorgeous, sumptuous fabrics, and women just went wild for them. And for the first time ever, fashion made headlines around the world. Well, Grace Wood, who was, or Woods, um, was a real person, and she became a mannequin. And I knew that she wore this fabulous style, and so naturally I had to. I had to set the book in the Christian Dior Atelier at the most glamorous time in Paris. Of course. (laughs) 
Um, Kerry. Yes. Um, tell me about the victory. Yes. Uh, is, is that a real thing? Did that happen? <laughs> Not quite in the way I wrote. <laughs> so, so tell me, where, where, the, the question I really wanted to get mm-hmm. at is um, where, does, where did the book begin for you as yep. an idea? Um, and did the research follow or did it blossom yep. out of research? It actually started with the victory. Mm. And it kind of came to me in a backwards sort of way, I think. So my my first book, The Last Days of the Remnant of Dancers, you know, I knew straight away the idea, the theme, the fact I was working around. Sure. Whereas this one came to me, the setting, which was this crazy boot, the victory <laughs> that I came up with. And it's going to sound really weird, but it was actually a dream I had. I had this very, very vivid dream where I was sitting in a boat watching another bigger boat and these people were doing handstands on the rails and contortioning themselves into crazy shapes and then flipping off into the water and they were all wearing, you know, little vintage swimming caps and swimming suits. And I woke up that morning and said to my husband, oh, I had this crazy dream. It would be a really fun setting for a book. Told him all about it and then sort of just filed the idea away, you know, thinking eh, maybe one day something might come of that. So I just jotted it down in my little folder of ideas. But the same day, my husband and I were going to the Maritime Museum to see an exhibition on the Titanic. And after we'd finished with that exhibition, we went, okay, let's just see what else the museum is displaying. Sure. And there was this one room that was just a huge display of Australian swimwear throughout the decades or centuries even. And going through this, I hit the point where it was sort of 1940s, 50s and 60s and they had in the glass box with the costumes a TV screen that had old black and white footage of it was a dock or a wharf or a jetty or something like that and these people were doing handstands on the end of it and contortioning themselves into shapes and then flipping themselves off into the water and I was shouting to my husband going, come over here, look at this, this is what was in my dream but mine was on a boat there on a jetty. But otherwise it's exactly the same. Even the era of the costumes and the little swimming caps they were wearing, it was all exactly what I'd seen in my dream, which sounds really weird, but I sort of took that as a sign of, okay, I'm supposed to do something with this idea. But of course a setting does not make a book. (laughs) So then I had to work my way backward into a story because I never want to just tell a story for the sake of showing a fun setting or something. It needed to be a story still worth telling. So then the research started. The research followed. (laughs) Yeah. So you've you've kind of come from a place of dreaming. Yes. And then and then gone work backwards from there. Which is not very advisable. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a right or wrong way to do it? You know and and you Alex Alexander you've come from a, a lifetime of passion. That's true, but there I also had this, I call it the falling in love moment. Right. Because after my last book, Rosetta, came out, which was about my scandalous great-grandmother who was um, a respectably married young woman with a husband and five-year-old child who ran away with a Chinese fortune teller called Zeno the Magnificent (laughs) and completely reinvented their life, became the toast of the town, friends with Empress Eugenie, Princess Charlotte. I have these amazing letters. So it was a life of, they were total imposters, Um, but she never saw her child again. And that child was my grandmother. After the book came out, 
I got a flood of emails and messages and letters from people around the country who wanted to reveal their family secrets. And one day I was sitting in the garden of a friend that I'd known for ages and ages, beautiful garden, we were sitting there, and she said, let me tell you about my mother. And when she told me, and this is Grace Woods who grew up in the west of New South Wales, who became a mannequin, when she told me the mystery about her past, I knew a bit like Kerry, it wasn't a book, but oh my God, it was a premise for a book Mm. because she had to find out who she really was. And it involves a coincidence. Seriously, every editor from HarperCollins who looked at the book at first said to me, I just, I love this book, but I mean, this coincidence, (laughs) Uh, Alexandra, it's it's just too far-fetched. And I'm going, that's real. It really was a case of fact stranger than fiction and unravelling who Grace Woods really was uh, was the driver for the book. That's terrific. Um, I want to ask you both, how, how long was the process from this inception to a, fi- a finished publication? We were actually talking about this mm. earlier. It's very hard to sort of pinpoint Right. A time frame, because especially with a book like Alexandra, I know from my own experience with my first book that when you're bringing your own experience and your own work background into it, it can be a lifetime's worth of work that informs the book and goes into it. <laughs> um, my book, I would say there has been several years of actual practical, you know, physical at the computer work on it because I did start the process of research and that long before I got a publishing deal for my first book even. So it's been several years of back and forth work for me mm. on this book. And then I imagine it's a very quick cascade downhill once it all comes together. Yes, then it all starts happening and there's lots to do. <laughs> Alexandra, what was, what was the transition like moving from having published two works of non-fiction um, to your first novel? Well, in Rosetta, and quite a number of sections of it were imagined. They were backed up by fact. But you see, you have to remember that my great-grandmother and Zeno the Magnificent um, were inventors. Mm. And nobody ever knew what was really real. So even when I got um, birth and marriage certificates and all bits and pieces, they were all full of lies. I was even able to un covered the Edwardian census back at, back in London where she said she was you know an heiress from America and he said he was a professor of medicine from Japan so I thought well this gives me license one because I am her great granddaughter and also because I wanted the reader to be thinking is this actually true or not because I think that's what their life was led like mm. once I'd done the book after you said after a lifetime of writing non-fiction I thought oh, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe I could do this for a whole book. I I think I probably channeled my outrageous great-grandmother and just started inventing. Uh, when I got going, because um, I had a pretty solid grounding, I, I knew a lot about um, Dior, I knew Paris extremely well. I'd taken myself off to French class. Once I heard this story from my friend... I was so inspired. It was like, you know when you get a book that you are dying to read, 
And once you start reading it, you are dying to know what happens. Well, that was me writing. The problem was I had to write it in order to read it. Oh, that's a great feeling to have. <laughs> so I wrote it in about 10 months. Terrific. Um, but I just wrote seven days. I just wrote all the time. I oh, totally wow. went into seclusion. I didn't answer phone calls. I didn't answer emails. Um, people knew if I'd, someone knocked at the door, they'd get a really cross response. <laughs> I, I, I just immersed myself in Grace Wood's fabulous, extraordinary world. Mm. Um, and uh, then I probably spent about six months during the editing. But it was it was fast and furious and fabulous. <laughs> Good. And and um, Carrie, what was what was the experience of of doing a second novel? Um, were there pains that you knew were coming that you sort of had to face up to a second time? I think I was a little less scared That's good. <laughs> this time because that first time it is very, well, for me, it was very sort of deer in headlights a lot. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Not so much the writing. I mean, you know, obviously there were a few moments like that with learning the editing process and that and being collaborative on that. But I really enjoyed that process, actually. It was sort of all the other things that make up being an author, you know, the, the talks, the sightings, the, the meeting, exciting people and hoping not to make a fool of yourself, <laughs> all those kind of things was um, you're very thrown in the deep end the first time around, or I felt that way anyway. So this time I know a little bit more what to expect and um, I think I can be a little bit more prepared and hopefully that's good. <laughs> I want to ask a question to you both and kind of touched it already. Um, it's tricky. How how do you how do you feel you're doing justice to um, people and events in history that are real, but you're transforming them into story on the page? Um, especially when when you're feeling um, uh, so so attached to it. Mm. Um, how how does how do you how do you be able to stand away from it and say that's done? That's I've done justice to that. Oh, <laughs> whoever can take the challenge. I know it's a tricky one. I mean, for me, you know, my main characters are fictional. So that gave me a little bit um, more room there, mm-hmm. I suppose. I think it would be more difficult for Alexandra when writing about a real person. And I imagine there's the pressure of wanting to get that real person right. But I was... I wasn't writing about real people, but I was writing about people who did real things. So the 93rd Searchlight Regiment, the um, Graves Registration Unit, Mm. you know, these were real jobs that real people had and they're not really well known today. And their jobs were dangerous. You know, uh, people died in both roles. Um, They were... You know, the men in the graves registration unit had high instances of PTSD afterwards. The women never got any credit for what they did. Actually, neither did the graves registration men. Um, So I felt the pressure of doing justice to all those people who had Mm. taken those roles rather than sort of one singular person. I wanted to be representative of what they really went through, what's not known today, what's how their bravery and their sacrifices are kind of ignored or they get lost in the big world of bravery and sacrifice in World War II. Um, So really for me it was just about listening to their stories and a lot of them have passed away now so obviously I can't 
sit face to face and actually no. listen to them, but a lot have shared their stories in various ways. I mean, there's a website called ATS Remembered in which a lot of the Searchlight women contributed by filling out forms where they talked about their position and the uniforms and equipment that they were given. And then there's a section for um, their favorite anecdotes and pictures from it and that. And it was really important to me to draw on the real things that they were sharing so that I could do their actual experience justice, whether I did it or not, you know, that's always the question. <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, uh, you can never, you can, those people are gone. Yes. Um, so, uh, by creating their story, um, in fiction, you're, what you're potentially doing is introducing new readers, a yes. new generation of people to those. Yes fallen heroes because you don't want their stories to be lost no you know it's their sacrifices might have been different to someone who was fighting on the battlefield but there were still sacrifices and there was still enormous bravery required and you know and i do think people should know about these roles and i i want people to understand the incredible respect that these people had for the situations they were living in and the way they really wanted to give of themselves to, you know, benefit their country and defend their country. And I, I just want people to know that. And I think it was also really, uh, really important to me to keep them human as well. Mm. That's how I feel like I can do justice to them is I don't want to martyr them or make them out to be perfect figures. They're still human. They still had their own fears. They still made bad choices as well as good choices. You know, they still went home at the end of the day and might have complained about something petty because they're human. And I think that's how you can do them justice by reminding people these people weren't just facts and figures and incredible things. They were people. Yes. Alexandra, how, how was it to pick up the pen and go inside the House of Dior? That was pretty fabulous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, like, Kerry, when you write historical fiction, you write from the basis that history has to be accurate. It has to be correct. Um, the settings have to be correct. So, for instance, when um, you have to imagine Paris during the war is a closed city, it's under German occupation, but it has never been bombed, unlike the other great European cities. So suddenly it's open, and it's open to the world, and everybody who is anybody wants to be there. So when I write about Picasso and Grace, Picasso was there. When I write about her uh, befriending the future Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy's there studying at the Sorbonne. Of course. Um, it's, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like this extraordinary... Pre even... Um, and I, it's got quite a lot to do with the American embassy. And when I write about the great food writer, Julia Child, mm -hmm. Julia Child is there, of course, because um, she was actually, as was the ambassadress, in the forerunner of the CIA. Who knew that about Julia Child? And she's there with her husband, who's a diplomat, and she's learning to cook French food. So there's this fabulous layers of wonderful detail about these extraordinarily rich characters who are all in Paris at the same time. It goes on and on. It's like Rita Hayworth, and it's Marlena Dietrich, and it's Ali Khan. So that was wonderful to research and to capture them. And also, 
The other thing was doing on the ground research. I mean, like it's it's a tough job, it's but someone's job. got to do it. Yeah. But being in Paris, and it's kind of fascinating because I'd written a draft and then I went there and I went, oh my God, but if she stands here, she actually can't see that street corner when, or it's never quite the same as it is in memory. So I did try very hard to get all the locations correct. And when she goes off to live in a chateau in the Loire Valley, I forced myself to go to the Loire Valley and stay in all these chateaus. Okay. <laughs> Tough <But> job. <laughs> At, Grace is at the centre and because she grew up during wartime basically running the fa- family farm and then afterwards was without a role, by a series of circumstances becomes a model in Paris um, and that's all based on truth also because amazingly the first place in the world that Dior's new look was seen was Sydney, Australia, which why, you will have to read about in the book. <laughs> but she becomes so much more than a mannequin because at that time also um, it's the beginnings of the Cold War. Communism's very strong in France. The Americans are pouring in with a Marshall Plan. And Stalin has set up a squad, this is all factual, within the KBG, KGB to assassinate leaders so she becomes propelled into a world that she never imagined she would have to face no i can't (laughs) imagine it myself (laughs) but again it's all grounded in absolute historical truth the thing that was interesting was my relationship with grace because I did feel a sense of trust. Um, Grace is no longer with us, but it was her daughter who shared the story with me. Um, she was the daughter was fantastic because I think she has been an artist and a designer and art director herself, and understood that you take inspiration and then you create another art form around it. Yes. But what I tried to do was to capture the essence of Grace. So I had, um, and as you know, I've had a background in psychotherapy unusually as well, but that equipped me to have some very in-depth conversations about the nature of her personality and psychology and how the mystery about her identity might have affected her. So I took that deep sense of who she was and then just allowed her to fly. I love it. We're running out of time. I want to wrap this up because uh, I, I think everyone's going to want to read these books now. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, to wrap us up, um, I want to do a quick bit of myth busting. Mm. Um, Kerry, uh, mm. as someone who's uh, so au fait with dance and particularly ballet, yes, what's what's something that people get wrong time and time again? Uh, are they popularly in movies? What, what's something that grinds your gears that you notice all the time? Oh, I mean... These days, it's probably the the bloody feet. <laughs> the bloody feet. Yes. The feet I don't mean, get bloody? Well, they still do. They get calloused more than bloody. And I know that's such a, like, a weird thing to sort of hone in on. But I think the reason it's such a 
a thing for me is when I was doing ballet full time, I had my ballet, lots of ballet teachers, but one in particular who would check our feet after class and get very, very angry if your feet were bleeding because she had a background in the English National Ballet and Maurice Béjar Ballet, so going back quite a fair way, and they didn't have the kind of things that we have now available to them. Like there's lots of little squishy gel things and toe pads and little pockets and things like that. And her belief was that if your feet are bleeding, it's because you didn't do enough preparation before you put your shoes on. It's a sign of failure, not a sign of sacrifice. Yeah, and maybe that might not be a universal thing. <laughs> that might have just been specific to that teacher, but it's certainly something that has stuck with me. And so every time I see the bleeding feet now, I'm like, did they prepare well enough? <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra, what's something that people get wrong about fashion time and time again? Well, maybe I could narrow that down to fashion magazines. Sure. Which is that people tend to think that everybody arrives looking as if they are straight off the cover <laughs> and that, you know, you're, you've just got that thing. Whereas, in fact, everybody arrives and because you see the range so early and you've already digested it and you photographed it and you're around people all the time, usually editors are in a black t-shirt and a pair of black pants or, or a great white shirt. Um, so that's probably an image that people don't have about fashion editors, um, but also it's a bit like the nitty gritty of dancing because a fashion editor has to be behind the scenes, you know, often sewing something up the back that's gone or ironing or, I don't know, holding an umbrella. <laughs> So um, probably everybody thinks that the whole staff arrives looking immaculate. They do look immaculate, but it (laughs) tends to be in very simple clothes, yeah. Of course. Thank you both so much for coming and spending some time together. Um, uh, If you want to read either of these books or any other fantastic books, um, Carrie Turner's book is The Daughter of the Victory Lights, Alexandra Joel's The Paris Model. Go online, booktopia.com.au. Go right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.